This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. George Monbia shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from, you guessed it, Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second week in a row when I have two separate guests for The Diglet. A lot is happening. I had two interviews scheduled, and I pulled listeners who overwhelmingly wanted me to post them side by side as separate interviews if they were on two separate topics instead of lumped in into one mega diglet. So here you go. Most of you probably know my guest for this episode, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner from the Bernie Sanders campaign, where she served as one of his most high-profile and electrifying advocates. Today, Turner is president of Our Revolution, an organization that formed out of the 2016 presidential campaign. Before we get started, you may have noticed that I'm posting four, that's one, two, three, four episodes this week. That's because, well, we work really hard on this show and try to add extra episodes when something goes down. And boy, have too many things been going down. We want to add 100 supporters on Patreon.com this month. If you haven't already, go to Patreon.com slash The Dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Dig. And contribute what you can. A dollar a month is great. Ten bucks a month or more, and I have books to send you. Also, if you're in Atlanta, I'll be speaking there next Saturday, October 14th at 10 a.m. at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. The panel is Reform for People Who Sell Drugs, Challenging a Taboo of Drug Policy Reform. And challenging that taboo, which we need to challenge and destroy if we want to end the drug war, is precisely what I'm going to be talking about. I'll include a link to the conference in the show notes and hope to see you there. 
Nina Turner, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. The last time we spoke, I was interviewing you for print, which just isn't as good because people can't hear your voice that way. So this oh. is better, I think. Yes, <laughs> you're so kind. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about some recent events. Two big ones that come to mind are the devastation of Puerto Rico in the Virgin Islands and Trump's response and also the massacre in Las Vegas. Let's start with Vegas. What will it take for political leaders to finally recognize that some things are seriously wrong with this country? A lot of different things, not just about guns, um, and do something about it. Yeah, you know, God, Jesus Christ himself coming back to earth. I mean, it seems that way. You know, (laughs) in some conversations I've had, you know, if Sandy Hook didn't move, policymakers and Congress to understand that we need to do do some do all that we can through public policy. Thoughts and prayers are, are good. I'm a spiritual woman. I believe in those, so I'm not minimizing. But we also have people who have real power who can do something. And if Sandy Hook didn't move us as a nation, I'm not quite sure if if the if what happened in Vegas, the hor- the horrific occurrence in Vegas even will with, you know, over five hundred injured and I don't know if we're up to 60 dead, but, you know, the, the people lost their lost their lives. So I'm not sure what is going to take. I mean, even just this week, you know, still, you know, bowing to the pressures of the NRA, you know, and, and the NRA is, is, you know, treating the Second Amendment as if it is above people's life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. So something is just wrong with that. And as a society, we have to make a decision and people who vote for these people need to also make a decision about, you know, what kind of country that we want to live in. And then I know your listeners are probably aware of, um, I think it's called the SHARE Act. It's, it's for the sportsmen and, and recreational shooters and whether or not we should make it easier for them to get silencers. I mean, for the love of God, who needs a silencer while they're hunting? So it, yeah, it, it doesn't it's make already, sense. It's already too late for the deer after you've shot them. They're, right. they're not... Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I don't know. You ask what is it going to take? I do not know. Sandy Hook didn't move them. You know, violence in urban communities with, you know, illegal guns on the street doesn't move them. I don't know what moves them. I really don't. Moving on to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, Trump was just in San Juan And Mm -hmm. after having repeatedly praised his own disastrous response to the crisis in a predictable fit of clinical narcissism and attacking the mayor of San Juan, he informed the people who lived on the island that they had messed up the budget. But then he went on to say that the debts are going to be dealt with, which freaked out everyone else in his administration. What's Trump up to here or is it is it and I find myself constantly asking this question or is it too much to assume that he's up to something kind of intentional he's being himself and that's the thing stunningly shameful his response to Puerto Rico the racial over and undertones of what he had to say they don't want to help themselves they want some you know everybody do something for them you know, as you mentioned, he continues to praise himself. He reminds me of the character in The Matrix, 
many of your listeners, <laughs> I'm sure, probably see, but you know where I'm we're talking about, Mr. Smith. <laughs> me, 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 me. You know, and, and, and that's him. That is actually who he really is. So he will always find a way to make every single situation always about him. I mean, praising your team in the midst of human suffering, a crisis, you know, from what happened in Florida and Texas to what is happening to our sisters and brothers in Puerto Rico and also the Virgin Islands. And then to not have the requisite empathy uh, towards this situation and dealing with it as the leader of the free world, it just boggles my mind. So he never ceases to amaze me and all so far, the overwhelming majority of it, 99.9% of it has been in a negative way. And I do think that, you know, and not that everything should be made political, you know, but throwing paper towels at people. You know, I was raised that there, you got to hand, hand that to people. What would have been <laughs> wrong with him, you know, just going up to them and putting it in their hands and looking in their eyes and saying, you know, I'm going to use the full force and weight of this office to make sure that we rebuild your infrastructure, make sure that people have clean water. I know you guys are going through hell right now. I mean, he could have handled that situation that way, but he didn't. Instead, it was like he was practicing free throws or something, just enjoying himself. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Daniel. It just, I don't know. (laughs) No no one does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to some slightly more optimistic stuff, um, single-payer universal health care, it's, yeah. it's long been a priority for the left, but mostly ignored by the Democratic establishment. But now, mm-hmm. most of, of the Democrats who are thought to be likely presidential contenders in 2020 are tripping over themselves to sign on to legislation. What happened? Mm-hmm. An idea whose time has come and, you know, Senator Sanders and, and also Congressman John Conyers too, because I, I got to give him a shout out too. You know, he He's has been on has that for a long time. About, yeah. Since 2003, you know, I had an opportunity. He invited me to be on a panel during the Congress, the week of the Congressional Black Caucus. So it was such an honor to sit on a panel with him. And, you know, Daniel, one of the things that he said and to hear him, you know, a dean of of his caucus, somebody that has been, you know, a Democrat for a long time. I want to say lifelong, but in case I'm missing a few years. What he said, he said the Democratic Party cannot win by saying by continuously saying that America is already great. You know, yes. and, and, and so in other words, you know, this dig against Trump that went on in 2016 and also the state that the Democratic Party is in right now. And that's not somebody I mean, that is somebody that most people, most reasonable people would say he is a stalwart Democrat. He is there as an elder statesman critiquing the Democratic Party, as I think anybody should have. Anybody can do. Nobody and no institution in my mind is above critique. But you know what happens when progressives like myself and others, we critique the party. We're just being haters. So Mm -hmm. it was so refreshing to have the congressman say that. And so he's been introducing that bill since 2003. He has 119 co-sponsors in the House. And then Senator Sanders has 16 co-sponsors in the Senate. And you're right. The overwhelming majority of those are either, you know, going to run or rumored to to be running for president in 2020. That says a lot about the push of this movement over time, because we have been talking about some type of universal health care for a very long time in this country. And ideas like that, you just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And here we are in 2017. But just last year, because I want you to listen to this, remember, you know, we had a primary candidate saying what Senator Sanders was pushing was a pipe dream. 
and we fast forward to 2017. <laughs> I think I recall that. Yeah, he has 16 <laughs> co-sponsors. How about that? You know, want to talk about ponies? How about it? Uh, the vast majority of the American people, regardless of their political ideology or leaning, the the, the vast majority of American people want to see, or there are polls that show that the vast majority of American people want to see the federal government take a stronger role in ensuring health care. Yeah, I mean, the idea that it's a pipe dream to th- believe that Americans have a right to the health care that they need without going into medically induced bankruptcy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, wow. you know, it was President Truman, even President FDR in 1944, I believe he called it the Economic Bill of Rights, and he had a whole list of things, and he talked about what Americans what Americans deserve. He didn't say should wish for, hope for, what they deserve, what they should expect, I think was the exact statement, what they should expect from their government. And on that list was health care. It was good jobs. It was housing. It was education. It was making sure that we had a safety net for people in this country who need it. That's what he said, what they should expect. So here we are. That was 1944. Here we are in the 21st century. And I think what he was fighting for still holds true to this day. And it is very much rooted in the spirit of, you know, of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and other freedom fighters like that. That was Reverend Dr. King. Dr. King talked about health care. And he said, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but of all the, you know, the ills in this society, all the things that we're fighting for, that the injustice when it comes to health care is, is, is the worst. So I, I believe what Representative Conyers and Senator Sanders and others of us who believe in this are really in the very finest tradition of social justice and social uplift in, in American society, led by men like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and, and the other freedom fighters throughout our, our nation's history. I'm glad that you mentioned um, that that it's been Conyers who's been at the lead of this for so mm-hmm. long, because it reminds me of a recent piece that I'm guessing you saw in the Washington Post by Simone Sanders, who was Bernie Sanders, no relation, mm-hmm. who was Bernie Sanders um, uh, communications director. Uh, press, I think that was her press title. Sec- press mm-hmm. secretary. Yes. And she wrote an interesting piece. I think that that was looking at this whole myth that Sanders didn't have and doesn't have black support. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this related kind of myth that things like universal single payer health care are not, quote unquote, mm, black issues. Don't even get me started, Daniel. When you look at when you look at health, <laughs> <I just did. laughs> health outcomes in this country, think about that. That African Americans medically, this is not anecdotal, this is empirical, suffer disproportionately. High blood pressure, heart attacks, you know, diabetes, you name it, on the negative end of the spectrum. And what universal health care would do for that community. It would help all communities, don't get me wrong, but when we look at the disproportionality of the suffering in African American communities, and, and a lot of this is rooted in systemic racism as well, you know, not having access to high quality health care, uh, having to pay taxes in communities and you can't go to that hospital. You know, that wasn't that long ago in this country's history. So what universal single payer health care would do to the uplift of the African American community? Are you kidding me? The overwhelming majority of the households for African American children are led by single mothers. And if you couple that with the fact that black women on average make less than white women, make less than white men, make less than black men on average, what would single payer health care do to the uplift of that family? 
it would do a lot. And then by extension, the uplift of our society. So universal health care is very much, it's a black issue. It's a white issue. It's a Hispanic issue, an Asian issue, Native American. It is a working class and middle class. It's a humanity. It's it's an issue for humanity. And if other countries on the face of this earth, other industrialized nations can do it, why can't we? You know, I was just on with Tom Hartman. You didn't got me started. I was just on radio with Tom Hartman just yesterday, <laughs> and we had a um, a gentleman from Canada call in, and he said, you know, we don't even think about it in Canada. It's just automatic. He said the burden. He said backwards. He said the burden of healthcare. We don't even think about it. Because it's, it's, it's just automatic. It's in our DNA as a country. You know, I hope to live to see one day that some generation after me, but I want to live to see it, can say the same thing. Our health is our wealth. And that is across, you know, this is a, 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 an issue that this country needs to deal with. This is about humanity and the type of country that we want to be. And Daniel, it's an investment of our tax dollars. Yes, we know it's not free. Yes, we know it's going to cost money. But it is an investment in the people of this country that impacts all of us. And it is the right thing to do is the morally right thing to do. But even still, obviously it's the morally right thing to do, even though there, the political context has changed dramatically Mm -hmm. in the last year, the democratic party, the leadership still has not embraced the idea of running on single payer and really embracing that as a core um, goal of the of the party. Instead, you know, they roll out slogans that are, uh, you know, a better deal that uh, better skills right. that leads with better skills, yeah. better jobs, better wages. Yeah. Um, what what's it going to take to if it's possible to to make it clear to them the importance of having a a vision that goes beyond better skills or or trying to find better slogans. You know, I, I say we need to ease up on the slogans <laughs> and do the work. You ask me. Yes. <laughs> so, but you know, the American people are moving on and it is because of this wave in America, the pulse of the people is what got, you know, the Senator, he would say it, those in, you know, 16 people co-sponsoring his bill. It is the pulse of the people that now Congressman John Conyers has, 119 co-sponsors. So when we think about how change happens in this country, it doesn't happen because people with fancy titles all of a sudden get a clue. It happens because the grassroots, because everyday ordinary people are making certain demands. And so that is what, what is happening. And that is why, and not all of them, some of them probably are you know, signing on to this for the right reason, but there are some just for political expediency. So when you ask me, what is it going to take? It's going to take the continuous push of the American people to make this demand. As Brother Frederick Douglass once said, power can seize nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And so you have voters in this country, the citizens of this country, the people of this country demanding that we change the system of health care in this country, Medicare for all. It is the morally right thing to do. Dr. King believed it. There are lots of other freedom fighters that believe that. Over the course, they say, what we're going to have during Martin Luther King, the reason I keep bringing up Dr. King, because he was so brilliant and so quotable. But the bottom line is this, come January, when we celebrate Dr. King, you'll have all those same people, you know, celebrating the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but not adhering to the tenets and the principles that he pushed. And Medicare for all, people having access to high quality health care was very much something that was important to him. So a lot of my listeners are pretty skeptical of the 
Democratic Party. Many are members of Democratic Socialists of America. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, too, are pretty skeptical of the Democratic Party. You've been a longtime member, but you've also seen it at its corporate aligned worse. Yeah. So tell me about your experience and how you see the current fight within the party. Yeah, I am. I listen, Democratic leader, been a lifelong Democrat. It is something that, you know, James Baldwin once said about this country when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, he talked about how much he loved this country and it was because of his love of this country that he reserves the right to critique it. And I feel the same way about this country and I feel the same way about the Democratic Party that I want it to be better, but I'm not a go along to get along type of person. That's just not going to happen. And the Democratic Party definitely has to find the courage to go back to its roots. Now, not all the way back, because there was a certain point in time of its roots for black <laughs> yeah. folks. We don't want to go too far, Daniel. <laughs> but, you know, to, the, to FDR, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, you know, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, that's the kind of roots I'm talking about. Not all the way back. But, you know, to really be about the business of the people and let that tell the story, not just voting for somebody just because they got a D or an R behind their name, because your listeners are that. But I'm talking about voting for people who stand up for the principles. It's a principle proposition. It's a value proposition. What do you value? What are you willing to fight for? That is what this is about, not just for the sake of going along to get along or being lambs led to the slaughter. It is about holding people accountable for our value proposition. So you did bring up very, yes, I was on the platform committee. You know, they didn't want to do Medicare for all, didn't do it for all in in, in that particular, even though we do have the most progressive platform in the modern history of the Democratic Party. So true. But it was like pulling teeth, you know, even dealing with TPP and some of those other things. So, again, people have to continue to to rise up and to be out there pushing, standing up for, because we can't always fight against, but we got to be for. And there are so many people from all walks of life, whether they're Green Party, Libertarian, Democrats, too, uh, Democratic Socialists, the Working Families Party, you name it. But this is about conscious-minded people coming together, omnipartisanship coming together on certain issues that will change the course of history for the better for, for most people. And, you know, Daniel, I would be remiss if I didn't throw out some of the major victories that our revolution has just had just this past Tuesday. You want to talk about value propositions where you have, Please. you know, Dan, uh, you have Randall Woodfin running as a progressive young millennial running to become mayor of the city of Birmingham in Alabama and won that race, won the primary and won won that race. He was endorsed by our revolution, endorsed by Senator Sanders, was relentless out there, you know, knocking on doors and letting the citizens of that city know that they deserve better and that if they gave him a chance to serve, he would show them better. The same thing with uh, Lumumba in in Jackson, Mississippi. So we are seeing that when Democrats or people who are progressives stand up and give people something to believe in, they will vote. They will do the work. That This is how we transform this country. We do it one school board, one mayor's office, one city council seat, one legislative seat at a time. That is how we do it. It seems like one lesson to draw from all of this and to draw from both the Sanders campaign last year Mm -hmm. and from Sanders' entire career, is that you 
want to have one foot in the party because we have a two party system and um, take the opportunities and fights there when one needs mm-hmm. to, but that it's also important to maintain independent some independence and independent organizations well, we have as to, well. Because we got to keep people honest. We got to keep institutions honest. We have to keep our elected leaders honest. And I'm not saying that in the sense that somebody is dishonest, but in terms of what they say they're going to do. And you always have to have those voices out there uh, pushing and challenging and, and holding institutions and individuals accountable for what they promise and for what they say they're going to do. That is America. You know, there's a quote where some historians dispute whether or not, you know, Thomas Jefferson said it or not, but that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. I'm not sure if Thomas Jefferson said it or not. It's attributed to him, but just just the whole, just think about that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. In other words, that when you have people who gather, who petition, who stand up, who lift their voices and not just get comfortable and not just to go along to get on, that is how we get changed. You know, we would have never had a civil rights movement if the African-American community had said, oh, no, we don't want to shake it up. We don't want to offend anybody. We'll just keep suffering. You know, we would have never abolished slavery if the African-American community said, oh, no, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to talk about how being, you know, labeled as chattel slavery and treated worse than second class citizens and having our children, you know, generationally born. And we don't want to shake it up. We don't want to challenge the establishment. Women would have never, you know, gotten the right to vote. And so all of those historic moments, those touch points that we can think about and talk about, none of that transformation of this country would have happened if there weren't certain people across the generations who had the courage to stand up and call out wrong when they saw it. And some people even gave their lives, Daniel, for these causes. And so who are we in the 21st century not to stand up and say, you know what? Medicare for all, you doggone right. It should be a right in this country that people shouldn't have to beg and, and, and worried about what job to the next job to be able to have health care. That it is the right thing to do to ensure that millions of people in the working poor don't continue to be there and languish there. That maybe we should increase the minimum wage, that the less than 1% in this country don't have an absolute right to have all of the money, hand over fist, while the majority of people in this country suffer. That, yes, it might be okay in the 21st century to say, let's rethink our education model in America, that maybe to keep our competitive edge pre-K to 16 might be the way to go in a knowledge-based economy. And how do we fund that? How do we make those kinds of investments? How do we make sure that certain children born to certain parents are not priced out of being able to get a, a, a college education or either to go to a trade school? How about that? So this, we are calling the question right now, Daniel, this, this, we're calling the question, a whole bunch of people are calling the question about whether or not this country is, in the words of Barbara Jordan, as good as it's promised. That is what this moment is all about. Senator Turner, uh, last but not least, are you considering running for office again? (laughs) You know, I get that question all the time, hence my little chuckle. But, you know, I am honored to, to, to serve as the president of our revolution. I really, really am. I do consider it an extension of my elected ministry to be able to support grassroots, Folks all across this country and even internationally, we have about 480 affiliates right now, Daniel, and seven of them are in other countries. So I am so excited about that. 
But this to me is just as important as when I was a senator or when I was a councilwoman or even when I was, you know, running for secretary of state. But we will never say never. I I may. I might run again. I might run for something again. But until then, I am very much committed to, you know, what I'm doing right now. And I and, and as I said before, I consider this a ministry. Oh, actually, that reminds me. Uh, one last question on top of that about <laughs> if you could tell me a little more about what our revolution has been up to. I mean, frankly, in some places like Massachusetts, where members help take over the state Democratic Party, yes. it seems like there's a real strong grassroots organization. Yes. But in others, it seems still, no offense, a little more like an email that people get. Yeah. Um, yeah I, <laughs> so how did like if you give me an overview of the kind of the state of the organization, what it's up to? I'm glad you said that. And we don't want it to feel that way. As I said, we we're almost up to 500, but affiliates all across this country, we're in every single state except for one of the Dakotas. I think it's South Dakota, but we're coming. We're coming to South Dakota, too. (laughs) But we empower grassroots folks to create, you know, an organization, an Our Revolution affiliate, and to really get involved in the political space. This, it was born from the candidacy of Senator Sanders. Everybody knows he is the, you know, this is was part of his vision that we create an organ organization that can help galvanize, motivate, and empower millions of people across this country. And that is exactly what we do. And so I do want people to go visit ourrevolution.com to see what we've been up to. We endorse candidates. We get out there and help candidates get elected. Randall Woodson, mayor-elect of Birmingham, is just one example. Uh, Chukwa Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi is another example. Christine Pellegrino, who became one of the a senator in the state of New York is another example. I mean, I can name countless examples of candidates that we endorse. Our process for endorsement is that the, our local groups, they are empowered. So any candidate that is running that has a local group in or near their area must first seek an endorsement from their local group. And then that local group can nominate them up to the national to, to for us to determine whether or not they will be endorsed endorsed nationally. And how about that? How about we encourage people who are running for office to actually talk to the people who they want to serve? It might seem kind of radical, but that's what we believe in our revolution. And then we do support issues, progressive issues. So the $15 an hour minimum wage issues that have passed all across this country on the local level, we have been right there in that fight. There are other fights to make sure that we undo Citizens United to try to get the oversized influence of big money out of politics, the 28th Amendment to the Constitution, some folks would say. So we are involved in those. And we take the, you know, uh, lots of our, our, our thrust comes from what our local affiliates have to say, either about an issue or a candidate. And another component of our work is to transform the Democratic Party. And you brought up, you know, what we've been able to do. And, and we did the same thing in California, where you have Uh, Leaders like Kimberly Ellis, who came within 64 votes of being the chairwoman of the California Democratic Party. That was a close one. She went up against the establishment (laughs) candidate. Oh, my God, Daniel, really close. And that didn't happen by accident. It happened because groups like Our Revolution, National Nurses United, other progressive groups, we got in there. We encouraged individuals who lived in California to to get into the democratic process, to run for those precinct committee seats. So then they would have a voice and a vote within the democratic party. And that is why 
Kimberly Ellis came so close to winning. We've done that. You know, one of our board members, Jane Clebb, she's the chairwoman of the Nebraska you know, Democratic Party, again, a strong progressive in a red state. But those are the kinds of things. And we have about seven chairships across the country in the Democratic Party that a progressive is at the helm. We have vice chairs and we have other people who are precinct folks. So we do want to, I mean, one of our goals is to transform the Democratic Party as as much as we can. And we need people on the inside. And God knows we do need those people on the outside. Nina Turner, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Daniel, so much. And to all of your listeners, thank you. Former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner was a top advocate for Bernie Sanders and is today president of Our Revolution. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once etched into a bathroom stall, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, four episodes. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a friendly review. I mean, it's up to you, but I hope it's friendly. Also, please let your friends know about the show if you think they'd like it. And last but in no way least, find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. We really depend on you to keep this thing going. Thank you.